With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why you wear. We're your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Today's podcast subject is a pioneer that fashion history almost forgot. An exceptional woman and single mother, I might add, that helmed a booming dressmaking business in Civil War era Washington, D.C. Now, this is no small feat for any woman during the 1860s, and it is a success made all the more remarkable by the fact that, for the first 30 years of her life, Elizabeth Keckley was enslaved. Called Lizzie by all who knew her, she was equal parts fearless, determined, and exceptionally talented. She used her mastery of garment construction to buy her and her son's freedom in the antebellum South before moving to the nation's capital. And it was here that she became the premier dressmaker. Among her clients were both the future First Lady of the Confederacy, Verena Davis, and the First Lady of the United States, Mary Todd Lincoln. That Lizzie was also the best friend and confidant of Mary Lincoln is actually one of the least interesting things about this fascinating woman, who challenged adversity head-on and made history and fashion history in the process. Lizzie left us with a memoir. It was called Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. Published in 1868, it serves as a powerful account of one woman's life during one of the most tumultuous times in American history. It has only been in the last decade or so that scholars have sought to revive Lizzie's story and legacy from the annals of history and restore her to a rightful place as a pioneer in the American fashion industry. It has even been suggested that her success is the beginning of black fashion design in America. But for Lizzie, the road to her success was not easy. And due to the very nature of the topic of this podcast, we are going to understandably be dealing with some pretty tough subject matter. It is with Lizzie's own words that we begin today. Quote, My life has been an eventful one. I was born a slave, was a child of slave parents. Therefore, I came upon the earth free and godlike thought, but fettered in action. She was born Elizabeth Hobbs in Dinwiddie County, Virginia, in February of 1818. And while she does not acknowledge it in her memoirs, for perhaps obvious reasons, Lizzie was the daughter of Agnes Hobbs, an enslaved woman, and her owner, Colonel Armistead Burwell. Yes, you heard me correctly. It is unclear exactly the nature of Agnes and Armistead's relationship, but what is clear is that, as an enslaved woman, Agnes would have had no choice in the matter. She herself had been born under the exact same circumstances, and this story was just not uncommon. It was actually an open secret and one that was really accepted, but just not acknowledged. Nevertheless, Agnes fell in love and married a fellow enslaved man. His name was George Pleasant Hobbs, and he was a kind and loving husband and father who treated Lizzie as if she was his own. Despite it being illegal at the time, both Lizzie's parents knew how to read and write, and they passed this knowledge along to their daughter. Any happiness that this little family might have found together came to an abrupt end when George was sold. Lizzie writes, quote, The last kiss, the last goodbye, and he, my father, was gone, gone forever. The shadow eclipsed the sunshine, and love brought despair. In response to Agnes's anguish, the mistress of the Burwell house told her, quote, Stop your nonsense. There is no necessity for you putting on airs. There are plenty of more men about here, and if you want a husband so badly, stop your crying, go find another. In the beginning, George was allowed to see his family twice a year or so, on Christmas, on Easter, 
and he never gave up hope that his family would be together again someday. He dreamed of buying all of their freedom. Lizzie wrote that one of her most precious mementos were the letters that he sent to them, hoping that they would all be together again soon. After George was forced to move to Tennessee, Lizzie never saw her father again. The beginning of Lizzie's memoir is one heartbreaking tale after another. One of her earliest memories was the pride she experienced when given the task of taking care of Armistead and his wife Mary's newborn baby girl, Lizzie's half-sister, I have to say. And she was also named Elizabeth. But any joy Lizzie experienced was brief. She was quickly introduced to the cruelty of her reality when she was lashed for accidentally rocking the Burwell's newborn baby out of her cradle. She was just five years old. From this early age, Lizzie learned from her mother to mask her emotions. But these experiences also served to fortify, not crush, her indomitable spirit. It was Lizzie's mother who also taught her to sew, a necessity that would have helped ease her mother's burden. Quote, Mrs. Burwell was a hard task master, Lizzie wrote. And as my mother had so much work to do in making clothes for the family, besides the slaves, I was determined to render her all assistance in my power. At one point, Colonel Burwell and the, his family, they owned as many as 70 enslaved persons. So this was no small feat, making all of these clothes. We already know that Lizzie was separated from her father, but at the age of 14, she was also forced to leave her mother's side when she was sent to live with Armistad's oldest son, Robert. Again, this is her half-brother. He was a Presbyterian minister. He and his wife, Margaret, had moved to Virginia to Hillsborough County, North Carolina, due to financial problems. Quote, From the very first day I did the work of three slaves, wrote Lizzie, and this work would have included all the necessary sewing for this growing segment of the Burwell family. A letter written by Lizzie to her mother in 1838 reveals that her skills are already well advanced, having been asked to be a bridesmaid in not one but six weddings that year. It was actually not uncommon for enslaved women to be bridesmaids at society weddings. The word, quote-unquote, maid takes on its most literal meaning here. And for one wedding in particular, to make her dress, she wrote, I only had a week's notice, and the body and sleeves to make, and only one hour every night to work. And this is a time when the sewing machine had not yet reached the mass market, so Lizzie had hand-sewn an entire dress for herself in seven hours. While Lizzie's letters to her mother strike a positive, if conciliatory, tone, Lizzie was, in reality, suffering horrific episodes of abuse in North Carolina. And she describes them in graphic, heart-wrenching details in her memoirs, and they are so bad that we will not recount them here. But one thing does become very clear. Lizzie is unconquerable. This is exemplified in one particularly severe episode. And she said, I told him that I was ready to die, but that he could not conquer me. Again, I went home sore and bleeding, but with my pride as strong and defiant as ever. And actually, she wrote that after this incident, he never touched her again. As she herself proclaims time and again, no one could subdue my proud, rebellious spirit, but many people would try. While in North Carolina, Lizzie was the victim of repeated sexual assault by a man named Alexander Kirkland. And in 1842, Lizzie bore her first and only child, a son whom she named George after her father. Years passed, and Lizzie was finally reunited with her mother when the two of them and Lizzie's son were all passed on to the Burwell daughter, Anne. Anne Burwell had married a man named Hugh Garland. 
Failing finances forced the family to move to St. Louis, Missouri, where Hugh intended to hire out Agnes to relieve some of his financial debts. And Lizzie was having none of it. She wrote that she would rather work her fingers to the bone sewing than to have her poor, aged mother sent out to work for strangers. So that's what she did. Lizzie was quick to build a clientele as a dressmaker. She says, quote, The best ladies in St. Louis were my patrons. And when my reputation was once established, I never lacked for orders. With my needles, I kept bread in the mouths of 17 persons for two years and five months. With the clientele in demand of the latest 1850s fashions, Lizzie only continued to advance and perfect her skills as both a dressmaker and a respected businesswoman. As her popularity as a bridesmaid also indicated, she was well-liked and possessed a natural elegance and beauty that drew people to her. But as her standing in the community grew, so too did her desire to continue her prosperous business as a free woman. All of her profits up to this point had gone to support the Garland family. And so says Lizzie, quote, I made a proposition to buy myself and my son. Garland, as to be expected, was initially resistant. But if Lizzie was anything, it was determined, and he eventually relented, valuing her and her son's freedom at $1,200. And this is no small sum, not that you can actually put a value on a human life, but this was around $33,000 by today's standards. But Lizzie, possessed of a strong will and drive, was undeterred. She worked tirelessly for years to achieve this sum. And it was slow going because she provided almost the sole support for the Garland family that owned her. But every passing year was one more year that Lizzie built upon her personal relationships with her clients. And it was one of these clients, Mrs. Le Bourgeois, Lizzie's quote-unquote ray of sunshine, who eventually raised the elusive $1,200 by petitioning Lizzie's other customers. So by November 1855, Lizzie and her son George were free. Now, for reasons unknown, Lizzie did not buy her mother's freedom it's possible that due to her old age, she may have chosen to stay with the Burwell family, but we just don't know. So during the years Lizzie was working to secure her freedom in the early 1850s, she had married a man named James Keckley. They had met while living in Virginia, but the marriage did not last, and he was more of a burden to her than a help, and she sent him packing. With her newfound freedom, Lizzie left her husband, taking nothing but his last name and her son with her north to Washington, D.C., in the spring of 1860s. And perhaps we should mention that there are variant spellings of her married name, Keckley, but even Lizzie's own memoir uses an incorrect spelling with an extra E. Lizzie was not alone in her aspirations of a new life in the country's capital. Washington, D.C. was seen as a place of economic opportunity and stability for thousands of hopeful freedmen and women who migrated there in the 1860s. The practice of slavery in the state, while not altogether gone, was slowly on its way out. The year Lizzie moved there, 78% of the 14,000-plus African-American living in D.C. were free. Dressmaking was a respectable profession for a woman in Lizzie's position, and one of the highest paid. It offered a rare opportunity for African-American women to build their successful businesses based on merit of their talent and not the color of their skin. Lizzie was perhaps one of the most successful and well-known, but she was only one of over 250 black dressmakers working in the city during this time period. As fashion historian Elizabeth Way has pointed out in her work on the subject, the most successful dressmakers were able to, quote, grow their small businesses from one-woman operations into vital participants in the elite fashion system. Their success carved out an ever-growing space in the American fashion industry for black designers. 
By the 10th anniversary of her freedom, Elizabeth Keckley had become the well-respected owner of a thriving business overseeing a staff of 20 seamstresses. But when Lizzie first arrived in D.C. in the 1860s, she was an inspiring entrepreneur intent on paying back the $1,200 raised for her freedom by her clients in St. Louis. She immediately obtained a job when she got to the city for $2.50 a day, but she soon found out that she could not remain there without the proper work permits. She would also need someone to vouch for her status as a free woman. Thanks to the kindness of Miss Ringgold, a new client and friend of the city's mayor, Lizzie was able to set up a shop and rent a nice apartment in a safe part of town. Lizzie then used her St. Louis network to her advantage in D.C., and it wasn't long before she was creating clothing for the city's most prominent citizens. Mary Anna Curtis Lee, the wife of General Robert E. Lee, was among one of the first to acquire Lizzie's services for the social event of the season. It was a dinner party given in honor of the Prince of Wales. Mrs. Lee had purchased the silk fabric, but tasked Lizzie with buying all the trimmings and gave very specific orders to, quote, spare no expense in making a selection. Lizzie was forever grateful for the kindness shown to her by the shopkeeper of the lace company Harper & Mitchell, who, without even knowing her, let her take lace out for approval. Quote, he remarked that he was not afraid to trust me. He believed my face was the index to an honest heart, and I shall never forget the kind words of Mr. Harper. I often recall them, for they associated the dawn of a brighter period in my life. Mrs. Lee's dress was a huge success, and Lizzie's star was soon on the rise. Another one of Lizzie's first clients was Verena Davis, wife of Jefferson Davis. Now, this is the winter of 1860, so just before the outbreak of the Civil War, the same war in which Verena's husband would serve as the president of the Confederacy. When Lizzie met the Davises, however, Jefferson was a newcomer to D.C. as a Democratic senator from Mississippi. The wife of a prominent politician was a coup for Lizzie's growing business, and she made several dresses for Verena and her family members. She was at the Davis home almost daily for their fittings, and her position really provided her with this rare behind-the-scenes access to the happenings of this house, which was a hotbed of political activity. Quote, The prospects of war were freely discussed in my presence by Mr. and Mrs. Davis and their friends, says Lizzie saying of Jefferson that he always appeared to me as a thoughtful, considerate man in the domestic circle. On the eve of war, Verena even invited Lizzie to join her in the South, but she politely declined. Okay, I'm having a little bit of a hazy recollection from American history class in high school. Wasn't Jefferson Davis eventually captured by Union soldiers and he was wearing his wife's clothes? Ha, yes, uh, but also no. So... Rumors about that very thing circulated after Jefferson's capture in May 1865. As you can imagine, this story made for a lot of good satirical cartoons. But Verena herself always said that she had only given her sick husband a shawl to keep warm, that it was not a disguise. But regardless of this, his capture became the stuff of lore. The story about him wearing women's clothes was still circulating years later when Lizzie came face to face with a wax figure of Jefferson in an exhibition. The figure was purportedly dressed in the clothing he was wearing when captured. Turns out the wax figure was wearing a dress Lizzie herself had made for Verena. Quote, I believe it now is pretty established that Mr. Davis had on a waterproof cloak instead of a dress, as first reported when he was captured, she wrote. This does not invalidate any portion of my story. The dress on the wax figure at the fair in Chicago unquestionably was one of the garments that I made for Mrs. Davis in Washington. And I infer, since it was not found on the body of the fugitive president of the South, 
It was taken from the trunks of Mrs. Davis, captured at the same time. <laughs> I wonder if she was more amused by this or irritated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Verena's early endorsement of Lizzie had helped secure numerous influential clients in D.C., but she only ever had her eye on achieving one goal, the White House. We will explore this next chapter of Lizzie's life after a sponsor break. Abraham Lincoln had just been elected as the 16th president of the United States in the spring of 1861, when Lizzie learned that the new first lady was in need of a dressmaker. Mary Lincoln was in a desperate situation. A cup of coffee had accidentally ruined the dress she was going to wear to an inauguration reception. This would be the first time Lizzie would come to Mary Lincoln's rescue, but it wasn't going to be the last. The day after Lincoln's inauguration, Lizzie entered into the White House for the first time to meet Mary, whom she described as, quote, a lady inclined to stoutness, about 40 years of age. In March of 1861, Mary would have been 42 to Lizzie's 43 years, but age did not factor into Mary's fashion obsession. Quote, well, if you will work cheap, you will have plenty to do, she told Lizzie. I cannot afford to be extravagant. We are just from the West and are poor. Penny-pinching would prove quite short-lived for Mary, but Lizzie agreed to her terms, and her first assignment was to make a bright rosé-colored moiré antique gown. Lizzie's lateness in delivering this dress threatened her future commissions with the First Lady. Mary was really upset until her husband, the President, saw her and remarked, I declare you look charming in that dress. Mrs. Keckley has met with great success. Mary placed an order with Lizzie for 15 more dresses to be worn for the spring and summer seasons. From that day, Lizzie's business boomed. She was able to hire a staff of seamstresses to assist her, and their work was now made easier courtesy of the sewing machine. Lizzie no longer had to sew all the garments herself. She could use her time to now oversee the initial mock-ups and the final fittings for each piece to ensure that they met her exceptionally high standards of excellence standards that have been said to be on par with the greatest artisans of the prestigious French haute couture houses of the era. Fashion historian Elizabeth Way studied four surviving garments attributed to Lizzie Keckley and posits that she likely used the pin-to-form approach to garment construction. So the first stage of any dress was the selection of fabric and trimmings, usually by the client. This was followed by a discussion of the desired design. Lizzie then built a mock-up made from inexpensive material that she fit directly on the client's body, over necessary undergarments, of course. And then this was reworked and refitted until the desired effect was achieved. Only then was the pattern created. Then the expensive material would be pulled out, cut, and sewn using a combination of machine and meticulous hand sewing. Now, this is the era of the cage crinoline, so Lizzie and her staff were making huge, expansive dresses with wide, bell-shaped skirts. The skirts with their straight seams would have been relatively easy to create, but the, it was the fitted bodice that was decidedly more complex. It was here where Lizzie's expertise shined. She had an impeccable ability to fit the bodice like a second skin. As a dressmaker, Lizzie might not have been a fashion designer in the traditional sense, but there is no doubt that her clients respected her expertise in not only fit, but also style. Quote, It is Lizzie whose fashions are splendid costumes for Mrs. Lincoln, whose artistic elegance has been so highly praised during the last winter, wrote a journalist in 1862. Stately carriages stand before her door, whose haughty owners sit before Lizzie, docile as lambs, while she tells them what to wear. Lizzie is an artist and has such genius for making women look pretty that no one thinks of disputing her decrees. 
You might remember our debut episode of Dressed was on Charles Frederick Worth, largely considered to be the first fashion designer and the founding father of haute couture, who was a rising star in Paris at this exact same time. And it's very interesting that Lizzie's career as a dressmaker kind of parallels Worth's career as a couturier. Yeah, it's really interesting. So we have surviving photographs of Lizzie, and she is a very striking, elegant woman. She's always impeccably dressed in fine silk taffeta dresses and with the most refined and understated of details that was, like, exceptionally chic. Placing careful trim here, piping a collar there, added visual interest without taking away from the woman herself. Lizzie was undeniably fashionable, if not fashion-forward. The same cannot be said for Mary Lincoln, however, who rightly considered high fashion a direct extension of her high-profile position and sought to use it accordingly. A well-dressed first lady was part and parcel to the White House's public image. Quote, the people scrutinize every article that I wear with critical curiosity, she told Lizzie. Mary was the closest thing America had to royalty, after all, and it was a role that she took very seriously. So the wide fashionable skirts were a blank canvas for Mary's fashion ambitions, and she favored bold patterning and the bright new colors made available by the recent invention of aniline dyes. For evening, she embraced a trend that threatened to offend polite taste, a daringly low décolletage, which some viewed as indecent for her age. She also would wear flowers on her head, and these were things that younger women would uh, incorporate into their fashions. But Lizzie agreed that this was inappropriate. She had a beautiful neck and arms, Lizzie said, and low dresses were becoming to her. One evening, Mary wore a particularly low-necked white satin ensemble. It was trimmed with lace and it had this grand floor-sweeping train, to which her husband responded, Woo, our cat has a long tail tonight, mother. It is my opinion, if some of that tail were nearer the head, it would be in better style. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, while he might have said it in jest, Many shared Lincoln's apprehensions and took the opportunity to criticize Mary's fashionable display as inappropriate for her age, especially during wartime. One Oregon state senator remarked, the weak-minded Mrs. Lincoln and her sorry show of skin and bones, she and her bosom on exhibition, a flower pot on her head. Lizzie and Mary saw each other almost daily, and it was not long before they formed a very close bond. This bond was made even stronger by shared grief when both of their sons met untimely deaths. Lizzie spent two weeks at the sickbed of the Lincoln's 11-year-old son, Willie, before he died in 1862. This was the second son the Lincoln family had lost. Three-year-old Eddie Lincoln had died in 1850. Mary had comforted Lizzie when her son, George, died on a Civil War battlefield in 1861. George had been a student at Ohio's Wilberforce University, a college founded by and for African Americans. When the war broke out, he enlisted in the Union Army as a white man because the lightness of his skin allowed him to bypass restrictions on black enlistees. It wasn't until 1863 that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation authorized once enslaved men to fight as Union soldiers. 180,000 men would follow in Georgia's footsteps. In the early years of the 1860s, tens of thousands of newly freed men and women descended upon Washington, D.C. in search of a better life, but Lizzie says they were quickly disillusioned. For one kind word spoken, she writes, two hard ones were uttered. Instead of flowery paths, days of perpetual sunshine, and bowers hanging with golden fruit, the road was rugged and full of thorns. The sunshine was eclipsed by shadows, 
and the mute appeals for help too often were answered by cold neglect. Now, Lizzie was a well-respected businesswoman, and she was a leader in her community. So she witnessed all this, and she rallied her church in support of the suffering. She formed the Ladies' Contraband Relief Association in 1862. The Lingans were some of Lizzie's biggest contributors and supporters, and she accompanied Mary on trips to New York City and Boston to rally support and create branches of her association. It was during one of these trips that she met Frederick Douglass, who had remained a friend and supporter of Lizzie's throughout her life. Lizzie divided her time between the association and her thriving dressmaking business. For Lincoln's inauguration celebrations to his second term in March of 1865, Mary appeared in what was now her signature low-necked gown. Tiny floral rosettes embellished tiered layers of fabric on the bodice and the skirt, while across her chest was sewn a sash of meticulously placed flowers, and upon her head, a crown of roses. For all of her five-foot-two frame, Mary was the height of fashion, and a dress perfectly tailored by Lizzie to show off all of her attributes and to hide her faults. It's also worth noting, I think Lincoln was something like 6'4", so they must have made an interesting pair. Uh, within days of the inauguration, Mary presented Lizzie with a promised souvenir of the momentous occasion, President Lincoln's glove. Lizzie had requested the glove from Mary months prior. So sure was she that he would be reelected. You shall have it in welcome, Mary told her. It will be so filthy when he pulls it off, I shall be tempted to take the tongs and put it in the fire. To which Lizzie responded, I shall cherish it as a precious memento of the second inauguration of the man who has done so much for my race. He has been a Jehovah to my people, has lifted them out of bondage and directed their footsteps from darkness into light. Indeed, three months after Lincoln's inauguration came the end of the Civil War. And on December 18, 1865, the ratification of the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. This, of course, abolished slavery and freed over four million people. But Abraham Lincoln would witness none of it. On April 14, 1865, Lincoln was shot by the actor John Wilkes Booth while attending a play with Mary at D.C.'s Ford Theater. He died shortly after. While Lincoln's death is engraved on the American conscious, Lizzie's role in the aftermath is less known. She was summoned by Mary to the White House the following day, quote, I shall never forget that scene. The wails of a broken heart, the unearthly shrieks, the terrible convulsions, the wild, tempestuous outbursts of grief from the soul. She denied admittance to almost everyone, and I was her only companion, except for her children, in the days of her great sorrow. In her state of bereavement, Mary gave away almost everything intimately connected with her husband. To Lizzie, she gave Lincoln's personal comb and brush, quote, the same comb and brush I had often combed his head. She also gave her the blood-stained dress and cloak she was wearing the night when he was shot. Lizzie intended to donate items, including the glove, to benefit Wilberforce University, which had been destroyed by a fire the night Lincoln was killed. However, Mary protested this. There's actually a surprising number of relics surrounding Lincoln's assassination that still survive, including his top hat and dress coat that he was wearing that night at uh, the D.C. Ford Theater. The black velvet Kate Mary was wearing that night, originally gifted to Lizzie, actually resides in the Chicago History Museum, as does one of Mary's mourning dresses, which dates to around 1867. Following her husband's death, Mary would wear mourning for the rest of her life. Her eldest son, Robert, was the only of the four Lincoln sons to outlive his parents. Mary's son, Tad, would die at the age of 18 in 1871. So after her husband's death, 
Mary moved from the White House to Chicago, where she would live with Robert and Tad. And behind her, she left a pile of unpaid bills. After a failed stint living with Mary in Chicago, Lizzie returned to D.C. and reopened her business. She continued to make dresses for city's political elite, with one notable exception. When she was asked, had she sent business cards to the new president's wife, Lizzie responded, quote, My answer was that I had not, as I had no desire to work for the new president's family. Mr. Johnson was no friend to Mr. Lincoln, and he had failed to treat Mrs. Lincoln in the hour of her greatest sorrow with even the most common courtesy. Unfortunately, President Johnson shared the sentiments of a broader populace. Many people had failed to show their sympathies to this grieving widow. The seeds of hostility towards Mary had been rooted years before in her perceived carelessness and expenditure and extravagance, and also in a distrust of her Southern heritage. Mary was originally from Kentucky, and her brothers and brother-in-laws had fought against the Union on the side of the Confederacy. However, her closest friend could vouch for Mary's loyalty. In fact, one of the many motivating factors in Lizzie writing her memoirs was the chance to defend the former First Lady. This became especially important after the duo was embroiled in the so-called Old Clothes Scandal that made national headlines in 1867. And we're going to talk more about this, but first, a word from our sponsors. Prior to Lincoln's death, Mary had confided in Lizzie that she was in debt for $27,000. It's about $375,000 today. It would appear that no expense was spared in Mary's pursuit of all that was fashionable. Not wanting to worry her husband or alert the public, she had plotted to take care of it on her own but had made little headway before his assassination. No longer protected by her position, Mary's creditors came calling in droves. But she was broke. She was still waiting for her promised White House pension, and by March of 1867, her situation had deteriorated to the point that she devised a plan to sell off her valuable collection of clothing and accessories, and she convinced her, quote, best living friend, a.k.a. Lizzie, to assist her. Says Lizzie, she was the wife of Abraham Lincoln, the man who had done so much for my race. So for the second time, Lizzie closed up her successful dressmaking business, and in September of 1867, headed north to meet Mary in New York City. What was intended to be a discreet display of offerings to interested parties ended up becoming an unintentional public spectacle. Once the newspapers got wind of it, the New York Evening Express was one of several outlets to provide a biting account of the exhibition. Dozens of dresses and expensive shawls picked through and tossed about on furniture, whereas more rarefied items like fur, laces, and jewelry, they were put in glass cases. Some of the dresses were criticized for being used, and if they were not worn, but rather brand new, they were criticized for being overpriced and out of fashion. One particularly harsh article in Springfield, Massachusetts, referred to Mary as, quote, that dreadful woman, forcing her repugnant individuality before the world. The majority of criticism towards Mary and her fashion choices seems to have come from men is particularly interesting, Cass. Perhaps we should do a future episode on the many ways in which women's fashion have been the scapegoat for societies and overwhelmingly some men's insecurities. I absolutely agree. And any of this condemnation of Mary's gowns was by extension a criticism of Lizzie herself. The woman who created these gowns with such skill and care only a few years before, she was now on the chopping block of public opinion alongside her friend. 
Lizzie adamantly defended Mary in the press. She made comparisons to the Empress Eugenie, who similarly discarded her wardrobe while she was in exile. But the vote of public opinion was cast. The sale was an utter failure. Mary's reputation was in tatters and with it Lizzie's. Lizzie's stature as a dressmaker of repute would never recover. Lizzie's memoir, published a few months after this clothing fiasco, was as much an attempt to vindicate her friend as it was to hopefully rescue her own career. In both of their defense, Lizzie published in full the personal correspondence between herself and Mary during this tumultuous affair. But by doing this, she had unwittingly drew the ire of racist journalists from all across the country. Dr. Jennifer Fleischner, in her seminal book, Mrs. Lincoln and Mrs. Keckley, wrote, quote, At the age of 50, she had violated Victorian codes not only of friendship and privacy, but of race, gender, and class. Not surprisingly, the newspapers that attacked Mary Lincoln in the fall and the spring now leapt to her defense. What I'm about to say next, this is a little bit hard for me to say. The New York Citizen wrote, quote, has the American public no word of protest against the assumption that its literary taste is of so low grade as to tolerate the backstairs gossip of Negro servant girls? Other people question Lizzie's memoir's authenticity and her ability as a formerly enslaved person to write with such authority and intelligence. Yeah, and I, I can't exactly remember when it was, but it was years after Lizzie's death. This man came out and wrote this inflammatory article about her that questioned her very existence. And people came out of the woodworks defending her and saying that they knew her, that they knew this woman. But in the aftermath of Lizzie's memoirs and the clothing fiasco, the most heartbreaking repercussions came from Mary herself, who after the book's release felt utterly betrayed by Lizzie's breach of confidence. Lizzie was sure that Mary would forgive her, and she even kept a picture of the former First Lady in her possession for her entire life. But the two never spoke again. Mary died at the age of 63 in 1882. Lizzie, however, would outlive Mary by 25 years. After the scandal, Lizzie returned to Washington. She attempted to relaunch her business, but it failed. But she was able to make money by teaching her craft, and so she trained a new generation of young Black seamstresses and dressmakers. However, financial difficulty forced Lizzie to part with her cherished Lincoln relics in 1890 and 1892. And then she moved to Ohio to head the Department of Sewing and Domestic Science Arts at Wilberforce University, her son's alma mater. Founded in 1856, Wilberforce was the first university to be owned and operated by African Americans, and it still continues to educate students today. Lizzie returned to Washington in the late 1890s, where she spent the final years of her life in the National Home for Destitute Colored Women and Children. This was an institution that Lizzie's own philanthropic organization had helped to fund over 30 years prior. In 1907, at the age of 89, Lizzie passed away quietly in her sleep. The Reverend Dr. Francis Gimke delivered a moving eulogy at her funeral, remembering, quote, a very remarkable person, a woman of unusual intelligence, a woman who thoroughly respected herself. And with that, we conclude this week's episode about this wonderful, inspiring woman. Thank you for listening. Until next week, may you too also exercise the loving practice of self-respect as you get dressed. Please follow us on Instagram for visuals that augment each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. That's at 
dressed underscore podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. 